welcome to episode 62 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing? Doing good. What's the latest? Yeah, it's gotten really hot here. And we had class the other night, and we didn't have AC. Oh. It was, it was bad. You don't have AC in your building? or they? No, we do, but they had shut it off, I think, for the holiday. Oh, Jesus. So, wow. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah, we we I went online and actually like tried to figure out whether you could put ice in a room and whether it would actually make the room cooler. <laughs> and there was one guy who said that he sounded like an engineer and he had done the math and two liters of frozen water or ice would cool a medium sized room. It could have the potential based on the thermodynamics calculations or whatever of cooling the room up to 10 to 15 degrees whoa whoa he, he said well of course there's you know loss uh, inefficiency the room's not sealed blah 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 i was like well that sounds legit enough so i um even if it's like three degrees we'll be a lot happier and it did i do have a clock thermometer and um we put that in the room and it went from 80 to 78 and then over time, it went back up to 80. So. <laughs> so it might not have done anything at all. It could just be a glitch, uh, but it also totally could have worked for two degrees. Yeah. How much ice did you have? <laughs> well, uh, there was like a freezer out in another room that had a, a decent amount of ice. Maybe we had like 15, no, uh, 10 cups or something like that. Not That's a lot. not a lot of ice. Was, no. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was an act of desperation. Oh man! Um, I think the fan the fan did more to help than the ice. But I told you the story about the time at USF when they were administering the LSAT, and it was an unusually warm day in San Francisco, and half of the people were in rooms, classrooms that were south facing, and they were getting beat on oh. by the sun all day. And of course, San Francisco has no air conditioning like anywhere because it's just never hot here. And um, they came out looking like they had been in a Bikram yoga class for the day. It was nuts. They were just like in the sauna for the entire day while they were taking the LSAT. Um, (laughs) uh, Obviously, advice to uh, dress in layers when you're taking the LSAT. But I I don't even know. I mean, you could strip down naked and if it's 85 degrees your brain's just not going to be operating on full capacity, I don't think. At least mine wouldn't be. No, no. I remember taking a test once. I don't remember what it was for. Some class in college, but it was like a really hot room. And I just remember my hands were getting sweaty. And then it's like you lift your hand off the paper and it's the paper's wet. Ugh. And you're like, geez, you Gross. know? What? Like, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it's not fun. Today's show, we have a couple letters from listeners. We really appreciate those. Thanks for sending them in. We're happy to uh, talk about whatever you guys want to hear us talk about. So send us email um, help at thinkinglsat.com and we're also going to do a question or two from the June 2007 logical reasoning anything else you want to throw into the agenda for today Ben no the uh, LSAT is four or five days away yeah by the time people hear this the LSAT will be (laughs) in their rearview mirror Um, if you're hearing this and you took the June 6th LSAT I think Ben and I would both advise you to not cancel your score. Call us if you really have doubts, but uh, 
we've talked about this on the show a lot. Canceling is almost never a good idea uh, unless you, you know, literally did not finish because of illness or something like that. You would uh, maybe be a candidate for canceling. But if you spent the whole 35 minutes on all four sections answering the questions as diligently as you could, uh, it's probably a good idea to keep your score. What do you think about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, we usually, I think, overreact to any official test and think the worst. Yeah, people are really bad at predicting how well they did on even their practice tests, right? You ask people mm-hmm. before they calculate their score, hey, how do you think that went? And they might have some idea on the logic games. They might have an idea how well they did. But on the other sections, logical reasoning and reading comprehension, I mean, you can feel good and have missed a bunch of questions. You can feel terrible and have gotten all of the questions right. So. Uh, do do not hit the panic button if you've already taken taken the LSAT. Call us if you want to talk about it. We'd be happy to talk you down from the ledge and keep you from canceling your score. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, cool. So let's dive into these letters. Um, I've had a little bit of email back and forth with these folks, and I I just told them that they should wait for their. Um, response, real response, when I could talk to you about it. And we'll, we'll chat through some of these issues here. Um, so the first question comes from, I, we got pseudonyms on both of the emails. Um, so this one is from Overwhelmed Dad in South Texas. He says, you know, thanks, I love the podcast, blah, blah, blah. Okay, 31 years old, married, six-month baby girl, congratulations. Uh, a high school history teacher, middle class white male, graduated from in 2008 from UT Austin in uh, double major in music theory and history. Interesting. 3.9-ish GPA. That sounds pretty solid. Yeah. And here are the questions. Four questions. So first, what are your thoughts about part-time versus full-time? How practical is it to think that a youngish father can work a full-time job of teaching while attending four years of law school during the evening? Does the debt that I avoid while in law school outweigh the stress of going from busy job to busy school to busy family? Uh, What do you think, Ben? Wow. Um, I guess one thing I'd want to know is what's his wife doing? If his wife is working full-time too, it sounds like a even harder proposition what i'm thinking is we've talked we maybe have talked about this before i think about it a lot every time part-time comes up part-time to me sounds way less stressful than full-time law school actually because when you're in the part-time program you're competing against other part-time law school folks so Everybody kind of has to put law school in a box. They can't really let it overrun their entire life because they have other stuff. They have uh, they have a job. Mm-hmm. And because of that, this is not I didn't I didn't I went to full time law school. Um, but the people that I've talked to that have gone to part time law school, it sounds like a more relaxing experience, actually, than full time does. Full-time, you're Hmm. competing against a whole bunch of 21-year-old kids who are straight out of undergrad, who are, like, used to the study grind, whereas part-time, you're 
you're dealing with older, more mature, busier people, people who can't study 80 hours a week, just necessarily, Mm -hmm. they can't do it. Mm -hmm. So I think if you take the six month old out of the equation, I I do think part-time law school, just the law school portion of it, part-time law school, I think is is less stressful than full-time law school. Hmm. That's uh, that's my gut, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. My impression was that um, you have people who are working, and maybe this is just because I'm thinking the only people I know who do part-time are in D.C., and D.C. is sort of a... Everyone's trying to do 101 things in this town, mm-hmm. I think. And um, But the impression I have is that people are working often at like the Department of Justice or something like that, and then they finish around 6 or whatever, and then they go to their classes at 6.30, and then they're going home and doing homework for school at night, and then they're going back to work the next day. So there's definitely a different demeanor because like you said everyone tends to be a little bit older they are working so they have this responsibility that they're sort of carrying on their shoulders that i think makes them a little bit more mature less um playing the game of law school maybe if there is such a thing but i do get the sense that they're working oh sure don't get me wrong i'm not saying it's not stressful and i'm not saying it's not busy absolutely it's busy but, you know, yeah. the problem with law school is that because the classes are graded on the curve, you have a classic prisoner's dilemma sort of a situation, right? If we all agreed that we were only going to study 20 hours a week or something reasonable, then we would all be better off. But because there's no way to make such an agreement, or even if we did make such an agreement, individuals would cheat. Therefore, mm-hmm. you get some people who are going to study all the waking hours of every day and Mm -hmm. in a full-time program that means that you could literally have people that are studying 12 hours every single day yeah and in a part-time program because everybody is working i think it it sort of self-regulates that or it limits that a little bit that you're you're just Mm -hmm. not gonna have people who are able to devote their entire life to law school because they have other stuff going on. So all I'm saying is I think the law school component is less stressful if you go part-time than if you go full-time. Now, you also still have your stressful job. Although this guy's teaching, maybe teaching for him is not that stressful. So, you know, it, it, it might be like a welcome distraction from, well, I've got my normal life where I'm teaching, then I've got my crazy law school life. Mm-hmm. I can't do anything to reduce the stress of the six-month-old. I mean, that's going to be nuts no matter what, right? Yeah. Either, either way, <laughs> the six-month-old, that's not going to change. That's the full experience no matter what. So I don't know that that's even really part of the part of the calculation here. Hopefully she's sleeping through the night. That can make a big difference. One thing he says here, he says, is does the debt that I avoid while in law school, assuming I keep working at my current job, outweigh the stress of going from busy job to busy school, blah, blah, blah. I, I was thinking about the debt factor here, and, and I don't know how soon he wants to go to law school, but let's assume that he took another year 
assuming he even needs that. I don't know that he needs that. But I'm just saying if, if he has some time to play with this and invest that time into really improving his LSAT score then and applying early and making his apps great, he can get scholarship money that will equal, surpass maybe what he would earn while he's working in law school and thus kind of trade one kind of work for another, work on the LSAT for work, you know, that he would do during law school. And given the fact that he has a high GPA, it seems very likely that he could get into a very good school and possibly get a good scholarship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We talk about the high impact of high LSAT scores a lot, and it is certainly a place where if you devote the right kind of time and effort to it, you could find yourself getting 90000 100000 $150,000 worth of scholarship money. And, you know, yeah. I don't know how much he's making as a teacher, but probably not that much. So, you know, if he, I think you're right, if he doesn't rush into law school, if he you know, takes his time and makes sure he gets the very best LSAT score he possibly can combine that with the high GPA, like you said, and he could very well end up getting out of law school without any debt at all. Yeah. And that absolutely is going to reduce your stress once you graduate. No question. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on. He's got other questions. Um, he says, this may sound silly, but how important is the law school you attend? I live in South Texas. The only law school around here is decent. Well, really, it may even be bad. It has a rankings a ranking in the 170s and has been having a low bar pass rate recently. There's only one top 20 law school in Texas, which is UT, and I will apply there, but I don't expect to get in. I don't know why he's saying that. Hmm. Um, better schools exist in Houston and Dallas. But that would, of course, mean leaving a good job, moving my wife, daughter, and myself, um, leaving his support system, like family stuff. Does being a strong student overpower an average or below average school? This question is a bit of the big fish versus small fish conundrum that has been discussed on your podcast, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on my situation. I plan on applying to basically every law school in the Texas area and trying to get scholarships. Well, I feel like there's always a little bit of a trade-off, and we've disagreed on some of these things before, but this school, if it's ranking in the 170s, I feel like that's so far down that he shouldn't go there. Yeah, I mean, again, yeah, so I might not go that far. I don't even know what school he's talking about, but this is the type of school that possibly is going out of business these days with so so yeah. few people going to law school. So you certainly want to think about that. And and then let's talk about what you mentioned, which is the positive aspect here. Why doesn't he think that he can get into a top 20 law school? I mean, he has the GPA for sure. And these top 20 schools give the same or maybe more weight to GPA because I don't know why I can't I don't know why they do that but they do that and it's you remember when we talked about the um, the index numbers and yeah. I can't remember mm-hmm. uh, 
who it was that was on the show, but he was saying that uh, the top, at least the top 10, give actually more weight to the GPA than the, the LSAT score. So even if he doesn't get the best LSAT score, I'm pretty sure he could get in. Yeah, I would uh, definitely raise my sights a little bit if I was overwhelmed dad here. I mean, he's, you think about it, you're about to make this gigantic investment, not only in terms of money, but also in time and the the stress that's going to impact your family and leaving your job and possibly having to move. Um, if you're going to do all that, you might as well like swing for the fences, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure it'd be pretty easy for him to get a scholarship at this very low-ranked school. And mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't at all worry about the low bar passage rate because that's a, an artifact of their admissions standards, not you know a sign of how likely his chances will be. If he's there on a scholarship, I don't think he really needs to worry about the bar passage rate thing. Yeah. But absolutely apply to UT and, you know, get yourself a high enough LSAT score and get yourself a scholarship to UT. Mm-hmm. He also says it's a bit, it's a bit strange. You know, I'm, I'm applying to every law school. Well, he says in the Texas area. So maybe he means also um, schools that are slightly outside of Texas, but I would just say, you know, if you're going to uproot, why not apply kind of all over the place or or other places that you that you could reasonably move right texas is gigantic and mm-hmm. so if he's if he's willing to move all all over texas then it's kind of like maybe you should also consider um out of state as well because you there's places in texas that are you know not drivable from other places in texas yeah for sure and I mean, I don't know how much they want to stay in Texas. Maybe they have a lot of family in Texas, and maybe that's where he wants to end up practicing. But I, I, I went to GW in Washington D.C. Is no one in my family is really on the East Coast except a small, a few people here and there, and it was a big change. But it's also kind of exciting to go somewhere else, go somewhere different. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like it could be fun. Yeah, well, and and again, because of the money thing, right? If if he ends up like you know, let's say whatever UCLA to pick a random really good law school, if he ends up applying to UCLA and getting a scholarship there, that offer might be so good that he just can't turn it down. Yeah, and and you know, it might be like, hey, sorry, friends and family, come visit us in LA, um, but we're we're taking off for a while and you can mm-hmm. always go back to Texas. If you go to a good enough law school, you can always, always go back and find employment. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. I've decided that this summer I will enroll in an LSAT class. Any recommendations in my area, San Antonio, we're big enough market for most of the name brand courses, Kaplan, etc. We also have a shorter, more affordable class at the local university which is University of Texas at San Antonio. That course is $560. It meets twice a week for about two months, so the hours aren't huge. But with having a baby at home, that may be better. Do you have a recommendation for who the best big-name company is for prepping for the LSAT? Do you know of any good local Texas classes? 
Well, I wouldn't go to Kaplan, and actually the hours are going to be shorter at a Kaplan class. I'm surprised. I think they're like 24 hours or something for $1,500. Jesus. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. At least the last time I checked, they got rid of their extreme course, which was actually like longer. And so now it's the same price, but it's 24 hours of class or something. It's it's pretty it's a pretty fast class wow. for that much money. I mean, I have no idea about the the local university course. I'd be I'd want to know who the teacher is. I feel like a lot of these they just kind of grab somebody. Sometimes it's like a professor who is in the philosophy department. Yeah, or teaches and, a pre-law class or a business law class or something, and then it's like, oh, well, you could do the LSAT, which is yeah. not at all <laughs> correct. Um, yeah. So in terms of big-name companies, I think that in Texas, I would, if someone were looking for a live class, I'd say Blueprint is probably there or Test Masters, but in Texas, it's I think it's called Score Perfect. Um so either score perfect or blueprint i mean the big name companies that are are reputable that i can think of there's a lot of them test masters mm-hmm. manhattan lsat power score blueprint i think that's yeah. avoid kaplan avoid princeton and you know the those four that we mentioned i think you you should check out see what's around there but i i want to talk to him you know about strategically I think he's really being short-sighted here, the way he's analyzing this. He, he's First of all, he's like, well, I'm going to save money on my class by doing a some questionable class at the local university for $560. Yeah. You're about to spend $150,000 on law school and three years of your life. And you can get tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of scholarship money if you get the right LSAT score. So... I understand that you have a baby at home. I understand, you know, you're worried about the investment that you're going to make, but this short-term investment and for a relatively small amount of money, you could end up saving yourself so much money and opening so many doors for yourself. I just think you can't shortchange yourself on the LSAT prep. Mm-hmm. I, it's just tragic that people kind of underprepare, take the LSAT. Oh, well, yeah, you know, for this guy. Oh, well, yeah, my fir- my diagnostic was 145 and I, I made it to 155. Great. You know, <laughs> but yeah. it, what if he could have gotten that to 160 or 165 and ended up getting $100,000 in scholarships? This reminds me of something that I looked into a long time ago, and I since haven't looked into it, and maybe you know this better than I do, but a while ago when I was looking at companies that offer LSAT preparation and GMAT preparation, almost invariably it seemed like they would offer these two services and they would be charging more for the GMAT preparation, which is a little ironic since actually business school plays places less emphasis on the GMAT than law schools place on the LSAT. Hmm. And so I was thinking to myself, I wonder if that's because people who are going into business school are more inclined to do this sort of analysis, Mm. like this cost benefit, I pay this much now and I get this much back, whereas pre-law students, that's not necessarily their thought process as naturally. That's a factor, I would imagine. Another factor would be maybe they just have more money. 
that, you know, because people tend to go to business school a year or two or three later, I think, than mm, law school sure. students do. So maybe they've been working for a while. They've already got a job working for General Electric. You know, kind of the point of getting an MBA is to get promoted at a big company. So they're yeah. already they've already got like a good job, but they want to, you know, climb the management ladder. So mm -hmm. they then I could see how sure they they're they're willing. They can they can do the analysis like you say, but they also have the money to mm -hmm. you know, make an investment in a class. But I, I do think I mean it's self-serving for us to say this, you know, we're <laughs> hey, just because we're biased doesn't mean we're wrong. It's it, we've just both seen it. I mean, we've just both seen people get literally full ride scholarships to law school because they got a killer LSAT score. So yeah. I think he needs to be thinking more in terms of what's the what's the route to getting the best LSAT score I can possibly get. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're not willing to spend the time now or spend the money now to get the best LSAT score you can get, then why the hell are you going to spend the time the time and money on law school? Yeah. It just it's like there's this is such a high leverage moment when you still have when you're still pre preparing for the LSAT. It just you can make big big difference to your entire future <laughs> by getting even a few more LSAT points. Yeah. And to make ourselves look a little less biased, I think you'd agree with this 100%. It's, we're not saying that money is the key. We're just saying, in fact, effort is by far more important than money. But money is a factor. Yeah, it's right. So I was scared when he said he's going to take a, a $560 local university class just because I've heard so many bad things about classes like that. Not this mm -hmm. one particularly, but I've heard just a lot of bad stories like that around mm -hmm. across the country. But then, yeah, the other thing is just, oh, well, the hours aren't too bad of the class. Like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, oh, I won't even take that much time. Yeah. Uh, oh, um, you know, if you could spend 50 more hours and get one more LSAT point, I think you should spend those 50 hours. Yeah. Um, okay. I think we covered that one. You know, sorry, dude, you're, you got a long road ahead of you. <laughs> the hard work is not going to end, you know, for the next four years. And so I think he, he should be of the mindset that like, well, this starts now and I'm going to start now by getting myself the best LSAT score I can possibly get. So I put myself in the best position um, debt wise after I graduate. Yeah. But the more effort you do put in now, the more work you do put in now, the less work you'll have on the other end and it will get easier get easier to work and like you were saying it's this is a high leverage opportunity you can make the end result so much better yeah. now yes yes um okay lastly how can i find out about different fields of law i've been interested in law for years blah 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 uh, I want to know what life is like for a corporate lawyer, lawyers who work with energy, civil, family, criminal, etc. Is there a resource out there for this information? Um, this looks like he's done some Googling. He's talked to some friends, but he only knows a couple lawyers. Uh, okay, that's basically it. Okay. What do you think? What should he do? Um... I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> um, 
it 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 throws up a few red flags for me. Okay. One part that I skimmed over. Let me just read it, okay? Because and I'm and I'm not overwhelmed, Dad. I'm not trying to bust your balls. I'm just I'm trying to. I'm just trying to be honest, I guess. <laughs> but so here here's the line that I skipped that really makes me kind of roll my eyes. It says, I've been interested in law for years. The knowledge and power that comes from knowing and applying the law and the change one can affect with that knowledge are immensely important to me. That just sounds really naive to me. That That is something that people tend to say who don't really know what legal practice is like at all. And I'm not saying that you can't be successful while saying that there are certainly, you know, it's possible to be an idealist and to, to go to law school and crush it. All I'm saying is there are a lot of idealists who go to law school and realize, oh shit, what have I gotten myself into? This is not at all what I thought it was. And then they, you know, drop out or they finish and go into a ton of debt and never practice law. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just don't want to hear about the knowledge and power that comes from knowing and applying the law. <laughs> it's like, it's almost comedy to me because I went to law school and I didn't learn shit about the law mm-hmm. and I got no knowledge and no power from that. So, and that's a lot because I was really naive when I went to law school. I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't know what I was going to do with when I do with it when I got out. And I just don't want to hear like the vague, oh, I'm going to be a better citizen because of, no, let's figure out a path to a job. Mm-hmm. So I think the most important thing here is that he really needs to get out there and meet as many lawyers as possible. He said he started with, he's got a couple friends who are lawyers. That's great. You know, go to their office, buy them coffee, figure out what it is that they're actually doing every day. And then also I think he needs to just work all of his contacts to meet more lawyers as many as possible in as many different fields as possible if he can't name a lawyer whose life he would like to have once he graduates from law school Mm -hmm. i think law school is a bad investment for him i mean especially for somebody who already has a job and who has a family I just, it feels like a terrible investment to me unless he knows, unless he's got an idea what he's going to do with this. Yeah. I mean, one thing he says is I'm interested in environmental law. My opinion, in my opinion, this is the biggest issue of our time. If he's really interested in, in environmental issues and making a difference in the environment, I would look up people who are involved in environmental causes in his area i mean there may be some national group but um, they may have some outfit somewhere in texas i'd assume that's close to him and ask someone there to have coffee or something and go talk to them and say what are you doing to or what are other people in your organization doing to advance environmental issues and uh, how many of you have law degrees is that useful is this are we fighting this on a legal front or are we fighting this some other way i mean i'm sure a lot of it is legal and that might give him the specific direction that he needs to say oh look i'm gonna go to law school and then uh, get involved in environmental issues in this particular way 
um, they may put him in contact with someone who I would imagine a lot of this is done in D.C. So I'm sure there are environmental lawyers who are kind of spearheading a certain part of this movement. But yeah, I don't know. Like you said, you, you want a sort of a specific idea of, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to get my law degree and then I'm going to go where? You can go to Texas and start practicing criminal defense <laughs> or, yeah. you know, I, I don't know what's going on around where he's ends up going to law school. If he goes to a top law school, anyways. Yeah, I think that's yeah. valid. I mean, I would, what about the law schools themselves? Uh, you know, law schools should know lawyers and this, whatever this low ranked law school is that's in his backyard, I would, I would go to them and I would expect that they would be able to connect me with alumni who are working in fields of interest to me. Mm-hmm. If they can't, then why the hell would you go to that law school? Yeah. Right? So, hey, you want to know environmental lawyers? Just go ask the school. I mean, you might start there. They might show you, oh, here's our legal clinic, you know, and here's our environmental law clinic. And you could talk to some law students who are working on these issues. You could ask them what they're doing, but then you could also say, well, who, who are you working with? You know, where's, where are the supervising attorneys? Can I talk to them? Can I learn what this is actually really all about? I, I, I get your comment about his sentence and I don't want to pile on here, but I do feel like a lot of people think that they're going into law to fight for causes that they're interested in, but most lawyers are fighting for causes that their clients are interested in and the money pulls you in one direction or another that's why you get so many corporate lawyers or other lawyers who are doing things that have nothing to do with their passion but that's where the money is and that's where the work is and so they're just working they're not yeah using their law degree in any way to advance any cause that they're actually interested well especially for people who went into tons of debt Right. I yeah. mean, if you if you can go for free, then I think you have a little more leeway to really um, take low paying jobs and fight the good fight working on, um, you know, the environment, if that's your passion. But if you go incur one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of debt, you very quickly realize, um, boy, I have to make that student loan payment. And I also need to pay my mortgage. And also, you know, my baby's going to want to go to college someday. And then you find yourself working on the other side of the exact issues that you went to law school to work on. (laughs) So you do become an environmental lawyer. You know, unfortunately you're a lobbyist for um, the polluters. (laughs) For Enron. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I think this is actually, I would say the most important issue we have addressed in all of um, overwhelmed dad's email is the very last one is just figure out whether this is actually something you want to do before you get um, too deep into the weeds here. And yeah. um, I would just love that you could email us back and, and give us the name of a lawyer who you you know what they do and you have a reasonable path toward getting there and you actually want that to be your life. You know, if you can do that, then I would be much more in favor of your law school plan. But until you can do that, I just don't know that you've really done the due diligence that I would expect before someone spends hundreds of thousands of dollars and three years of their life on law school. Yeah. And risking a divorce, not to mention 
you know, I'm, I'm seriously, seriously, yeah. a six month old is already almost a divorce, but a, like a job slash law school slash a six month old. I mean, you got to think about what you're doing here to your family by taking this step. You could be doing the best thing you've ever done for them if this is really a, a smart move for you. But if it's not, then it could end up being just a disaster. Yeah. Okay, on that dark note, maybe we should move on to the next email. Okay, here's the other email. My main issue is that after failing to adhere to your advice of staying off the law school forums, I am now filled with doubt over my law school choices. I chose to apply early decision to a school near the tail end of the top 14 and was ultimately accepted. It was my first choice going in, and I was ecstatic as I was awarded a scholarship near full tuition. This is sounding really good so far. Really good. However, after viewing posts on the forums, it seems like I have limited myself somehow by not going to an even higher ranked school within the top three or top six. Are the differences so extreme between the schools within the top 14, or are these limitations exaggerated? I would hate to sit out a year, but I do think I left some points on the table with my LSAT, and I would like to avoid putting any sort of ceiling on my career. Maybe I've just turned into a crazy person after reading all these posts, but any help would be appreciated. I have some more data here, but I, I don't want to get into too much the specifics because, you know, this is like an active law school candidate and um, the numbers might make him... You know be able to be identified so sure I'd like to try to keep so, it anonymous if possible okay so we can say high 160s we can say high 160s yep okay well looking at his data here which is high 160s for the lsat mid threes for the gpa i would take this offer and i would run with it i don't think there's that significant of a difference between the bottom of the T14 and the top, there is a difference for sure. There's name recognition that's going to go further for a top three, top six school. But here's the other side of this, and that is that this person is given their GPA and given this person's LSAT score, they're unlikely to do a lot better. And when they go to that school, I don't think they're as likely to do well compared to their other peers. So it's going to be better for them to get a higher GPA at this school than it is to get a middle or low GPA at a top school. I think he can turn this into an opportunity where he does really well at the school he's gotten into and take it from there. I think that's going to matter a lot where he is in his class. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I I don't think I would reboot my law school candidacy in this case. You've already got a scholarship, almost a full ride to a top 14 school. And, you know, this whole idea of top three, top six, top six. I've never even heard anybody talk about top six before. I mean, that sounds like some shit that people make up who are already going to the sixth ranked law school in the country. <laughs> Right. Then they start referring to the top six. I'm serious. Just like the, just like the top 14 was just totally arbitrary and made up. Yeah. Or just like the, 
dumbass study group that people started at Hastings when I was there where it was you had to have a 167 or higher law school uh, LSAT <laughs> score to be in their dumb study group. I mean, what what is this? I, this is I feel like this is internet trolling and it's the type of shit that you get when you go on these forums and you know, you just law school has a big hierarchical component to it and LSAT students and law school students, you're going to find a lot of just dicks out there that love to look down at as many people as they possibly can. So mm-hmm. sure, there are some people there, you know, and you don't even know whether these people are telling the truth, by the way, right? Like I would never go to a law school if I couldn't get into the you know top three school. Yeah. Really? <laughs> really? So UC yeah. Berkeley law is not a good enough school for you? You don't think yeah. people go to UC Berkeley Law and become fantastic lawyers who change the world? I mean, shut yeah. up. Just just stop it. And Well, they also have to think about their motivation. Like, if it's really that cut and dry, even if you get in, do you want to be doing law? Like, that should be your first question. Right, because there are plenty of people who don't get in, you know? What about the people who don't even get into the top 14? Oh, no. I didn't even get into the top 14. You know, now my life is ruined. I, I, well, I would never be a lawyer if I don't get into the top 14. Oh, really? So like UCLA law, that's not good enough for you <laughs> to become mm-hmm. a, to become just a kick-ass, big-time, fancy law firm lawyer from UCLA law. Yeah, for sure. What? I, I just don't understand. This is this is hating. You know, I, I love to talk about it in... In San Francisco, I always laughed when I was at Hastings, which is a you know very middling law school. But the people that I was in law school with at Hastings, a big component, a big big percentage of them loved to think about how great a law school Hastings was and look down on everybody at USF and Golden Gate. Yeah. And but all I could think about was, dude, you know you wanted to go to Berkeley, you know you applied to Berkeley and didn't get in. But now you're looking down at USF and Golden Gate. Well, guess what? There are people at Berkeley who are looking down at you. And guess what? There are people at Stanford who are looking down at the people at Berkeley. And, you know, unless you go to literally Yale, you're all they're always going to you're always going to have that where there are people above you, there are people below you, whatever. Mm. So, anyway, yeah, it does seem like this guy is driving himself crazy. Um, by reading too much on the internet. Yeah, and I see here that he wants to get into appellate litigation, which is kind of an elite set of lawyers, right? A lot of lawyers, a lot of law students want to do this, but they can't do Mm -hmm. it because they don't get the grades that are necessary. And it seems like to get the grades that he needs to get into appellate litigation at a good firm that does this um, in the area you're going to have to go to this school and not a top three or top six. I mean, I'm not saying he can't do it at these these top schools, but I think the odds of doing it are just much harder. Just because you don't think he'll be able to compete at the top schools? Is that what you're saying? No, I just think any well, anytime you go up to a higher-ranked school, you're competing against people who are better at getting high GPAs. Yeah. So yeah. you're going to be competing against people who – more people who had three – nines and three nine fives they're professional students and 
even at a T14 or T13, or he says, I don't know, near the tail end of the T14. Even at that school, he's going to be competing against very, very bright students. I don't know if it's if bright is the right word, but at least students who are very good at getting high GPAs. At least they work hard enough to get them. And and that's what he's going to need to do to get into appellate litigation. Yeah. So I would go to this school and say, hey, this is actually probably the best school I should go to to get that high GPA and yet still have a good enough school to then go into appellate litigation. Yeah. Also, this is not a student who it looks like a no-brainer that he could score way higher on the LSAT. Um, his highest practice test was only a couple, a couple points higher, uh, literally two points higher. than oh, okay. That's his highest mm-hmm. practice test was two points higher than his actual. So, yeah. you know, uh, on a retake, um, he'd have to study a lot. And even then, it wouldn't be certain that he would be able to improve the LSAT score. Another factor is he says that his employment prospects for the next year, if he were to wait another year, his employment prospects aren't like awesome or anything. It's not like he's leaving a really great job. So yeah, this seems like time to uh, shut down the internet and uh, get started on your legal career. And, you know, instead of reading these forums, you should be reaching out to real attorneys and thinking about what kind of law you want to practice and, um, getting yourself ready to compete academically during the first semester. Yeah, go to this school and try to do the best you can in your GPA. Because I think if he wants to get into appellate litigation, that may change, of course, but he's got to have a high GPA. Yeah, straight A's. Start reaching out to uh, the 1Ls from this school who are rising 2Ls and you know, find out what it takes to get uh, the really good grades because that's what you're going to have to do. Yeah. Okay, that is it for our emails want to do uh, a question or two of logical reasoning yeah cool let's do it cool so this is the june 2007 test uh if you want to play along at home all you have to do is just google june 2007 lsat and this test will pop right up we are on section two and we are going to do question number 23 If you'd like to pause the show and uh, work on this question on your own before listening to our discussion, that might be a good plan. But uh, Ben, why don't you go ahead and read the question? Sure. So this philosopher says, an action is morally right if it would be reasonably expected to increase the aggregate well-being of the people affected by it. Okay. An action is morally wrong if, and only if, it would be reasonably expected to reduce the aggregate well-being of the people affected by it. Thus, actions that would be reasonably expected to leave unchanged the aggregate well-being of the people affected by them are also right. What? Okay. Um... Quickly scanning down, I see that this is a sufficient assumption question. It says the philosopher's conclusion follows logically if, which one of the following is assumed? So we're trying to prove this conclusion, and you said what? Mm-hmm. Because you had some issue with this conclusion, I assume. Mm-hmm. What was your issue? Well, this is pretty classic where they bring up some new shit just in the conclusion of their argument. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, we never they never gave a premise about 
actions that would be reasonably expected to leave unchanged the aggregate well-being of the people affected by them. That's right. And they're trying mm-hmm. so that's new and they're trying to connect that with rightness. Mm-hmm. If they would have said that the actions that would be reasonably expected to leave unchanged the aggregate well-being of the people affected by them are not wrong, yes. I would have said yes, you the, the, the sentence right before that justifies that because it says you're wrong if and only if you would reduce aggregate well-being. So yeah. we can definitely say that if it doesn't reduce aggregate well-being, then it's not wrong. Yep. But that's not what they said. They said if it doesn't, if it doesn't change the well-being, it, we know it's not wrong, but that's not what it says. It says, therefore, it's right. That's right. And, you know, I would bet you that that's the answer, that uh, if it's not wrong, it's right. Yeah. Uh, well, this is a sufficient assumption question, which is interesting because they have to prove this conclusion, which means there's only going to be one, maybe two problems. But if there are two problems with the argument, the correct answer has to fix both of them. Otherwise, it won't prove the conclusion. And so I feel like these questions are really easy to predict. And that's the problem, or at least that's a problem (laughs) and so that problem has to be fixed yeah we have to know that this is somehow right they're easy when you get good at them and this still is question number 23 right so the argument is really hard to follow it's got a bunch of big like heady kind of um abstractions in it and Mm -hmm. so it's not like we're saying this question is easy we are saying sufficient assumption questions as a class tend to be predictable and therefore easier. Yeah. And it's, I'm mentioning it partly because almost everyone seems to get this flipped around. They think that necessary assumption questions are the ones in which it's going to be predictable. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are still somewhat predictable, but yeah. Yeah. Like they're like, well, they're necessary. You're looking for what has to be assumed. So it's, it's going to be very predictable. It's going to be very specific thing. And then sufficient, it's like, oh, anything that's enough. And so they think that there's a ton of answers for sufficient and very few for necessary, but it's exactly the opposite. Ironically, because you have to prove the conclusion in a sufficient assumption question, the answer choices themselves are very constrained because if they don't go all the way, they're not good enough. Yeah, there are more ways to lose an argument than there are to win an argument. And all necessary, any, any weakener or any way to lose, you could phrase it as a necessary assumption that protects against that possible loss. So Mm -hmm. there are, I think, infinite necessary assumptions that are possible for uh, any argument, but Mm -hmm. you can't, for sufficient assumption, it's just, Hey, this is the LSAT in order to prove a conclusion, you just have to take the evidence that's on the page plus one answer choice and the evidence and the answer choice have to lead exactly to the conclusion that's stated on the page. So it becomes really formulaic. It's to win an argument, to make a, to find a sufficient assumption. It's shockingly predictable. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, I already said what the answer is for this one. Yeah. Okay. So just to recap, if you're getting a little lost in this uh, passage, keep in mind the first sentence is talking about what would happen if it's reasonably expected to increase the aggregate well-being of 
if the, if an action is reasonably expected to increase the well-being of the people affected by it, then we know it's right. Then we know it's right. And the second sentence is talking about when it's reasonably expected to reduce the aggregate well-being. So right away, you should also be thinking like, okay, they never told us about what happens when nothing happens, and yet that's what right the conclusion talks about. It talks about when it's unchanged, and it says they are also right. Okay. And we say, well, the only thing we know about right was the first sentence. The second sentence said, wrong if and only if expected to reduce. So if it's not reducing, then it's not morally wrong. This is exactly what you said, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's right. But it's such a natural assumption. Oh, if it's not wrong, then it must be right. But there could be some middle ground there as well. Okay, cool. So let's go through these answers. Uh, Answer choice A, only wrong actions would be reasonably expected to reduce the aggregate well-being of people the people affected by them. That is restating part of one of the premises. That's exactly right. So that, that's the um, another way of you can translate this because only introduces the then clause and sometimes I do that just to make sure I'm like thinking about it the right way, but I would translate this as if it reduces the aggregate well-being of the people affected by them, then the actions are wrong. Uh, and that's just restating. Yeah, it said an action is wrong if it would be reasonably expected to reduce the aggregate well-being. Yep. So that's just, A is like already part of the evidence. That doesn't help us win. We already have A in the bank. That That's not helping us. So I have a feeling that a lot of people pick this answer because I feel like I've talked about this answer before with people. And um, hmm, yeah, I think they may be, I don't know, because even if you flip it around, it's still just restating something that was already said in the argument. It doesn't get us from wrong or not wrong to right. The point here, I think more than anything else, or at least the way I would teach this, it, and I, you know, maybe it sounds a little bit conclusory for me to say this, but on a sufficient assumption question, if you can't tell them what's missing, if you can't, if you can't look at the argument and say, okay, well, here's your conclusion, and here's the part that you didn't really justify in your facts, and here's how we get from your facts that you have to the conclusion you want, if you can't make a really good, strong prephrase on a sufficient assumption question, you are in a world of hurt. I mean, you're just going to have a really hard time finding it in the answer choices if you don't even know why the argument is incomplete. Yeah. And it reflects a, a gap in your skill set. That's a skill that you should come to have for sufficient assumption, at least. Yeah. You should be able to say, okay, I see the two or three premises. I can put them together and figure out what they prove, and I can see how that is different from what the author concluded and uh, that's a really valuable skill set to have and it's one that you should be able to do in in sufficient assumption since there's going to be only one problem it's not like you have to identify three or four Uh, by the way this is a skill that you will find very useful in your first year legal writing and research class when you start writing um, legal briefs and memos you really do have to learn how to connect all the pieces of an argument that lead uh, inexorably toward a conclusion. So I don't think this is just a special LSAT skill that has nothing to, you know, people, people sometimes, oh, this is bullshit. I don't see what, this is the LSAT. What is this, some stupid test I have to take? 
Well, yeah. no. If this were your your legal um, brief, you're you're briefing a judge on a case that you're trying to win. There's a missing piece here, and you need to be able to figure out what the missing piece is because this conclusion is just not justified by the facts. Yeah. All right. Sorry, this is a little bit random, but a student just sent me this uh, like two days ago or a few days ago. It's from the Supreme Court, and I guess he was working on some case at his government agency, yep. the Spokio case, and this is what he sent me. It's a picture of the case, and it says, particularization is necessary to establish injury in fact, but it is not sufficient. Yeah. This is the first sentence of the opinion of the case of the court and he's like hey this isn't all crazy this stuff about necessary and sufficient is just gonna keep going oh absolutely i used the word sufficient and necessary on my law school exams all the time yeah. you know just like hey how is this crime defined or you know is this element of a crime is this element of an offense is this a necessary element or is it a sufficient element or is it both necessary and sufficient I mean, yeah. you really do need to understand the, the difference between those two. Yeah. So answer choice B, no action is both right and wrong. So? Oh, okay. Uh, it can't be both of these things, but it could be something else. <laughs> and so even if it's not wrong, that doesn't mean that it's right. Exactly. Yeah, if it, I would like B better if it said, in fact, B would be the answer if it said actions are either right or wrong. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. Because we'd say, hey, this one is not wrong, therefore it must be right. Yeah. Okay, answer choice C. Any action that is not morally wrong is morally right. Yeah. Oh, this is, this is exactly what you said, and this is even better than B because it adds in that little morally aspect here. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know if that. I wonder if that matters. I th- I say because, no, but because if you're right and wrong, that would include morally wrong and right things as well as anything else. Yeah, so, I would. That would be fine if C weren't there, and if B said no action, uh, any action that is, uh, it's every action is either right or wrong. Yeah. Uh, if C was not there, I would be plenty happy with B. Yeah, but. Okay, so C is almost certainly the answer. I wouldn't circle it, but I'd be like, yay, this question's almost over. Yep. And then I'd look at D. There are actions that would be reasonably expected to leave unchanged the aggregate well-being of the people affected by them. This sounds like a necessary assumption, right? There are those that are out there. These actions actually exist? Yeah. Is that a necessary assumption of the argument? Yeah, maybe. Fine. Maybe. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or it's just sounding like a necessary assumption. It's a lot of the weak. words of the argument. And, I, you know, it just, it doesn't get us from point. From, from It doesn't, it does not build the bridge that we needed built. Yep. Oh, I love E. Only right actions have good consequences. Wow. We don't care about the consequences and how good they are. Consequences so. were never even mentioned as part of the argument at all. Um, that's a pretty terrible answer for a sufficient assumption question. Yep. All right. So see, it is. Yeah. And I, I got it. I mean, I already said this and I'm not like showing off or bragging or anything, but the best way to answer this question is to cover up the answer choices and then arrive at C independently before reading the answer choices. And then you just scan the answer choices and there it is. Yeah. I mean, that's the way you would do it, right, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's, a, that's you know, it's not like you're going to just all automatically from the womb know how to do that, but it is a skill that you can practice. If you see enough of these sufficient assumption questions explained, I mean, you would just watch Ben and I just all day, Ben and me, you would watch Ben and me uh, all day <laughs> just continually predict the exactly the answer for sufficient assumption questions just over and over and over and over and you know brand new sufficient assumption questions that we'd never seen before we would always be able to just look at it and tell you well you know the evidence is this and the conclusion is this and to get from this evidence to this conclusion what's missing is blah 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 and that blah 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 like 95 times out of 100 that blah 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 is just exactly one of the answer choices yeah, and in fact, I think we've mentioned this a hundred times before too, but just to reiterate it, if I'm reading an argument and I'm like, okay, and then I see that it's a sufficient assumption question and I didn't see a problem, like you said, you got to cover the answers. It's like, this is a big red flag. I have to go back. There's either a word missing or a slight wording change. I just got to go parse it and find it yeah. because then I'm done. Yeah. But I think people just like to jump into the answers. Well, they're in such a rush, right? I got to get to the end. I got to get to the end. How can I answer the question if I don't look at the answer choices? I mean, this is a this question is a great example though of where the answer choices are actually going to confuse you and waste your time and just they're they're going to make it harder. Um, yeah. they're the swamp. Before you go into the swamp, you got to arm yourself with some sort of a prediction. And so yeah, if even if I hadn't seen the hole in the philosopher's argument, which I did, but if I hadn't seen the whole, when the question stem says the conclusion follows logically if which one of the following is assumed, that means that the argument is close, the argument can be proven, but it is not currently proven. There's one way, you know, to get there. Yeah. And so then I have to provide that. I have to, I have to be able to say what I want then once I can say what I want, then it's just right there, bang, in the answer choices. Cool. Should we do 24? I'm game. Okay. Car companies solicit consumer information on such human factors as whether a seat is comfortable or whether a set of controls is easy to use. However, designer interaction with consumers is superior to survey data. The data may tell the designer why a feature on last year's model was given a low rating, but data will not explain how that feature needs to be changed in order to receive a higher rating. Okay, it says the reasoning above conforms most closely to which one of the following propositions? What would you classify this question as? Must be true. Um, interesting. So I would look at it as, hey, you know, it's kind of similar, actually. I look at it as almost like a, a, almost a necessary assumption. Like, since it has reasoning, mm -hmm. what must this person be thinking? Mm -hmm. And so we could translate as much be true. Yeah, but we're both asking ourselves the same question. I mean, necessary assumption questions are also really close to must be true questions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, I 10 years into my LSAT teaching career... I'm arriving at the conclusion that this is all, in a lot of cases, it's way simpler than what people make it out to be. 
I don't, I no longer believe that there is such a thing as a principle question. I don't think that there, I think previously I would have put this as a principle question of some sort, like identify the principle or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But all it really is, is did you understand what the facts said? Which one of these as close as possible, which one of these is a match, you know, which one of these basically is what the argument is talking about. So I feel like to me, it's, it's really, it boils down to sure. I mean, we could call it necessary assumption. If you want, you could call it, I I would just say my must be true skill set is going to go a long way for me here. I want to find the one that's kind of boring and obvious and the, the best closest fit to what the facts said. I agree. Let's take a look at these answers. Answer choice A. Getting consumer input for design modifications can contribute to successful product design. Shit, yeah. That's awesome. Cool. Uh, B. So we'll keep that open. (laughs) I mean, I like it because (laughs) what I really like about it is the can. Yes. You know? It's not saying that it will... And or, so that it's like, because if I'm in my must be true mindset, I want conservatively stated answer choices that are good fits with the given information. Yeah. And this was absolutely about people doing design. And it was absolutely about people um, soliciting consumer input. And it said that if we get consumer input if we if we interact with the consumers then they can tell us how the feature needs to be changed which is a perfect fit with design modifications Mm -hmm. and so to say getting consumer input for design modifications can contribute to successful product design it just seems like it i would say a is a must be true answer based on the given facts yeah I'll be shocked if I can't get rid of B and C and D and E. Yeah, and if we come across one, then we'll go back to yeah, A and say, com- oh, maybe we can compare something. But I would be loving A. Sure. Okay. B. Car companies traditionally conduct extensive post-market surveys. Uh, traditionally extensive post-market. We know that they do survey customers but and we don't know if they're pre or post market we don't know how extensive they are and we don't know we don't know if this is traditionally done yeah (laughs) that's good yeah so new words new ideas this makes us nervous and again so i'm not like trying to harp on this but if this is a must be true question all of these words traditionally extensive and post market those all are opportunities for this answer choice to be wrong. They're all oppor- they're all ways that this doesn't necessarily have to be true because we just don't have that information. So I, I would be really skeptical of B uh, as a must be true answer. I agree. Okay. C, designers aim to create features that will appeal to specific market niches. <laughs> Uh, so the first part of this sounds reasonable enough. Yeah. Designers are, seem to be wanting to appeal to people, but, uh, the specific market niches comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It's probably true in real life. It's almost undoubtedly true in real life. Um, you know, whoever designed the VW Beetle 
is aiming for a specific market niche of people who like to put flowers in their dashboard. Um, but that's just not what these facts are about. Yeah. We're, we're looking for something that conforms to the reasoning above. The reasoning above never mentioned specific market niches. So, uh, no, come on. No way. Yep. D, a car will have unappealing features. Ooh, that's strong. It will have unappealing features if consumers are not consulted during its design stage. <laughs> they could get lucky and make them appealing. So Yeah, probably true in real life, although maybe not. You know, Maybe there's a, a, a genius, super genius designer who can just make the most appealing car out of thin air without consulting anybody. Sure. And that would be a way that D could possibly be false. Even if the given facts are true, D can be false. And so I don't think it's the answer. Yep. E, consumer input affects external rather than internal design components of cars. Huh? <laughs> also, also, also maybe true. Uh, you know, like I don't know that consumer input, they're not probably telling... The consumers are probably not telling car companies how to make better fuel injection systems. Yeah, but that also depends on how you interpret external, external versus internal. Inter yeah, it could be the interior right, like inside of the, the car. car. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. But you're probably right. So it's probably talking about that. But you could still see how it would could affect, right? Oh, well, if they want this uh, AC to go twice as fast, then we have to make this other thing yeah. that's inside. So anyways... Either way, they never talked about external or internal, so done. Yeah, that's not mentioned by the facts, and A to me seems to be a pretty easy choice for this question. And, you know, imagine if you just replace that question stem with um, which one of the following must be true. Mm -hmm. um, I think then this question gets way easier. That, that question stem actually, I think, is going to confuse a lot of people just because they don't exactly know what they're being asked. Yeah. So the reason I had considered it a necessary assumption is because when it says the reasoning, I'm thinking, okay, there's a conclusion, there's evidence, and this person must be thinking something to get to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but and ultimately I'm still asking the same question. You are. What has to be true? What has to be assumed? What must this person be thinking? And so that's how we end up with this sort of the same lens. Yeah. Like, oh, this is too strong. I think we end up in exactly the same place because, you know, there are those questions where it'll, it'll, it'll be explicitly a must-be-true question, but there yeah. will have been reasoning above. And sometimes the argument will mm -hmm. be incomplete, mm -hmm. but there will be yep. premises and there'll be a conclusion. And then it'll say, based on the information above, which one of the following must be true? Yeah. And in that case, the correct answer can be a necessary assumption of the argument yeah. because it has to be true in order for the argument to make sense. I remember a couple of years ago when I was looking at one of those and I was like, this is like, this is a necessary assumption question, but they phrased it as a must be true question. Like <laughs> at the time I was kind of like, should I just like abandon the distinction between necessary, <laughs> sufficient and must be true? And I don't, you know, it's still something I kind of toy with and it's something that i think you're kind of talking about a little bit uh fundamentally though in either case as long as you ask yourself does this have to be true you'll be fine yeah i i do think that you're you're right i think necessary assumption and must be true questions are really closely related 
Yeah. E- either way, we, we get to the same place here. 24A. Cool. I guess we should look up the answers for these sometimes. Nah, we got them all right. There's no way. I'd be shocked if we both if we both missed them. Um, somebody listeners will catch us anyways for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, we love to hear that kind of shit. I mean, if we're wrong, please tell us we're wrong. I I want to know that I'm wrong. In all my books, people are like, "Hey, you know, I hate to be a dick about this, but um, you know, do you want to know about typos?" I'm like, "Yes, of course, I want to know about typos. Yeah, please. My shit prints on yeah. demand, and if you tell me about a typo, I will fix it, and then it won't exist in the future." So. No, please do um, tell us all of the many things that I'm getting wrong, and every once in a while when Ben gets something wrong, please, please. <laughs> yeah, let I us can't know. handle. I can't handle it as much. So <laughs> I just get a lot more things wrong than you do. Oh yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah. sure. Cool. Well, that was good. Yeah. Um, good times. Anything else? I don't think so. I'm uh, ready to leave foggy San Francisco for about a month. It's um, it's cold as shit here, man. It's like 55 degrees. It's terrible. It's like it's like it's that kind of fog that gets super dense where it's like turns into rain. It's like wet outside because of the because of the fog, and yeah. it's just cold. And I mean, it was Memorial Day, dude. It's supposed to be summertime. Um, I'm tired of it. So I'll be spending uh, the month of June, the most most of June, um, in Los Angeles, and then. Yeah, starting in July, I got LSAT classes going in both San Francisco and LA. I'll be back and forth teaching um, full-time classes in both places. So, wow, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a busy summer and fall. Are you going to be doing like weekend classes in one place yep. and weekday classes yep. in another? Yep. Is that what's going yep. on? Okay. I'm doing weekend classes in San Francisco with a with uh, practice tests on weekday nights. And those will just be okay. proctored. I won't be there, but uh, there'll be there'll be practice tests as part of the class on Wednesday nights. Uh, by the way, if you're in San Francisco and you want to come to one of those practice tests, uh, reach out to me because I'd love to have you as a guest at one of those practice tests. You do that as well, don't you, Ben? In DC? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, so Saturdays at uh, 10 a.m. Sometimes in the afternoon, but almost always on at 10 a.m. Do people need to tell you, or they just show up? I'd be good if they could tell me just so we make sure we have enough seats because yeah. they are pretty packed. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. So same, same with me. Um, just let me know in advance, and you can take a practice test in downtown San Francisco. Um, those are going to be on Wednesday nights, starting in July. My class will be weekends, occasional weekends. It won't even be every weekend, but it'll be like every other weekend or every third weekend. It'll be like an intensive thing, and um, in San Francisco, and then. On the weekday nights, I'll be teaching a full class in Los Angeles, cool downtown LA. So nice. I'll be spreading the Fox ideology. Yeah, throughout spreading California. the gospel. No, um, I'll be I'll be getting a lot of frequent flyer miles on uh, Southwest Airlines. So, oh okay, yeah, cool. That'll be cool. What do you, you got? Anything uh, exciting happening? Hey, are you hiring Seth? Do you have a new intern? <laughs> Uh, so Seth and I have been talking back and forth. Um, I need to figure out more about what he can do, but um, yeah, I'm excited to have him reviewing videos and stuff. There are a ton of videos from class. I don't know if you know this, but I, I record all my classes mm-hmm. and then um, break. Well, so there's like several videos that come out of each class, and then I put those videos into. Uh, different lists so that they're organized by question type and test Uh and yeah some videos are better than others you know Uh, some discussions are really good some are really short Uh, sometimes I don't 
explain things as clearly as I would have liked. And so going through those videos and trying to find the best ones and uh, stuff like that, there's a lot of a lot of stuff to do. But it's helpful to have someone who has a you know LSAT mindset. Speaking of which, if anyone is interested in helping going through these videos, can help you prepare for the test and help me get uh, the best videos available to everyone. So I'm always open to help on that. But yeah, so that's what we might be doing. Ben at strategyprep.com. Yeah. If you want to talk to me, I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com. You can also tweet me at nfox or you can tweet the show at thinkinglsat. Uh, thanks for listening and we will catch you next time. Yeah.